um, those who are present and those who are uh, coming in by Starleaf. Um, the meeting today will include briefings from the Department and UFU on the future agriculture policy, consideration of a number of SL1s and SAs. Claire Morris Patsy will be joining with Starleaf, and John may be coming in as well. As we know from previous, that the meeting will be broadcast through Parliament Building Online, and you can use your devices so long as they're in airplane mode. <coughs> we have no apologies, right, Stella? Karen Morris will be joining us a little later, okay? So the first item on the, uh, sorry, the second item, the first is apologies, and on the second item on the agenda is we have uh, oral evidence session from the DERA on the Future Agriculture Policy and Basic Payment Scheme. Um, okay, and I want to just say that we're starting the meeting a little bit earlier today to facilitate those of Farmers Union who need to leave the meeting at 11.15 a.m. So I want to finish our session with your staff around 10.30 to give us 45 minutes with the UFU. So if possible, if we can just keep our questions to the point and succinct today, that would be very helpful. Okay, and I want to re refer you to papers from the department which have been tabled at pages 3 to 10 of your packs, and a research paper which was compiled in October 2016 <coughs> Farms Report is in your main pack, pages 6 to 23, and a statement by the Minister which was made in the Assembly on Tuesday is on 11 to 21 of your pack. So at this juncture, I'd like to welcome by Starleaf, uh, Norman Fulton, the Head of Food and Farming Group, and Rosemary Agnew, the Brexit Director. And I want to ask the officials to commence their briefing. And then following that, we'll have some questions from the, uh, the, the members. Again, remain, just keep them concise. Okay, so Norman, Rosemary, do you want to kick off there? And uh, thank you for the opportunity to provide a, a briefing on the future agricultural support for Northern Ireland and the planned changes that we hope to make for 2021 scheme year. So uh, the committee will have received a copy of the minister's statement that he made earlier this week um, and also a written paper. So I'll say just a few words of introduction uh, and then Rosemary and myself will be more than happy to take any questions that the committee may, may have. So in terms of the general direction of uh, future uh, policy, uh, we had a 2018 engagement exercise uh, with uh, uh, stakeholders on future policy framework. Uh, that framework had been co-designed uh, with our food um, farming and environmental stakeholders uh, and was built around four pillars of uh, increased productivity, environmental sustainability, improved resilience uh, and an integrated uh, effective efficient uh, supply chain and we have a number of policy projects uh, ongoing to start to flesh out uh, how we will deliver on those outcomes. The framework also exists within the uh, uh, green growth uh, envelope and we'll hear to the principles and also be part of how we deliver uh, a green growth agenda from uh, within the agricultural sector. So we are leaving, uh, have left the, the, the CAP, um, and so we now have that uh, responsibility to develop our own framework uh, for future support, and we no longer have to be constrained by the, the, the CAP Pillar 1, Pillar 2 construct. Um, <clears throat> so we do, do now need to focus on uh, the tools that will uh, deliver the outcomes, uh, so primarily around uh, the appropriate mix of education, regulation, incentivization as the primary uh, policy tools at our disposal. So our aim is to uh, devise a, a support regime that provides opportunities for all farmers um, and to help farmers 
uh, develop their business, uh, no matter where they farm, to put more efficient, sustainable, uh, productive, um, and future schemes must also ensure that farmers uh, receive uh, a proper return on the assets at their disposal, and that includes uh, the environmental asset, uh, and uh, ensure that there is a, a return from that, uh, which is present on many farms. So we now have the Agriculture Act that provides us with legal foundation uh, to move forward. Uh, we're continuing to work on finalising the budget that will provide the necessary uh, financial resources uh, to move forward. Uh, and so the focus needs to be now on the, uh, the architecture uh, of the future uh, policy. In terms of basic ar ar architecture, we do see a continued role for a, a, an area-based resilience payment uh, to provide a safety net, but one that does not blunt the incentive uh, to become more productive and, and to deliver better environmental outcomes. Uh, we'll also be using a proportion of the agriculture budget to fund uh, coupled payments. Um, now, that doesn't mean we have to return to the coupled payment uh, regimes of the past, and we can certainly design in features that will help to deliver the goals of productivity and environmental sustainability, and we will be consulting on that in 2021. However, for 2021, we will proceed with a pilot uh, protein crop uh, coupled payment uh, for combinable beans, peas, and sweet lupins. Major part of the new program, of course, will be uh, the agri-environment uh, arrangements and regime, and we'll work with farmers and land managers uh, and our environmental stakeholders to co-design a new approach, uh, focusing on delivering outcomes and leaving a lasting uh, legacy. Uh, and we have an opportunity now to create uh, an approach where management of the environment uh, is actually uh, a profit center for any farm business rather than a cost center. And we have a number of uh, work streams taking all of this forward. But for 2021, uh, we will be introducing a series of simplifications and improvements. Um, and so Minister had already announced the removing of greening requirements. Uh, and we will be adjusting the basic payment scheme entitlement values accordingly to reflect that, that change. Uh, we will continue to uh, retain the protection for uh, environmentally sensitive permanent grassland uh, that had been part of the greening uh, framework. It's now part of the basic payment scheme framework. Uh, we will be introducing a technical adjustment, adjustment on capping for 2021 to, to ensure that the effect of capping has the same uh, impact on 2021 as it did in 2020. Uh, but we will be looking uh, as part of our longer term approach at the whole uh, issue of capping. Um, and we'll be looking at that uh, more closely in, the, uh, in, in 2021. Um, we will be limiting the number of uh, entitlements that can be allocated uh, or topped up from the regional reserve in respect to applications from young farmers or new entrants. So that'll be a, a limit of 90. Uh, currently, there's no limit, uh, but that brings it into line with the approach for the young farmer payment. Uh, we'll also be limiting, limiting the number of times that an applicant can apply uh, to the young farmers payment and regional reserve to three, and that's to prevent uh, repeat, repetitive claims year after year. Um, so uh, we'll be introducing that. We'll retain the current active farmer provisions uh, for 2021, but we will uh, review uh, and uh, make sure that they're fit for purpose. And we'll also be retaining the uh, single application date of 15th of May. But again, uh, look at that just to make sure that it remains appropriate. Um, we'll re remove offset penalties uh, by limiting uh, over declaration 
penalties to a maximum of 100%. So that means that we will no longer be uh, applying offset penalties across other schemes or indeed uh, penalties that may fall into subsequent years. Um, we'll begin a review of the, the scope of cross compliance, um, making sure that it actually is relevant uh, for Northern Ireland uh, and can deliver policy uh, objectives. But we will uh, seek also to look at the, the penalty regime to ensure that it is, uh, it is more uh, proportionate uh, compared with the uh, current approach. Uh, we plan to review the de minimis threshold for retrospective uh, recoveries. Sometimes uh, they're very small. Um, recoveries have to be made um, and we would look to, to raise that uh, threshold. Land eligibility requirements will remain the same for uh, 2021, but again, we will look at that um, and uh, currently a project uh, is, is examining that um, to see if there uh, are changes that need to be made uh, for subsequent years. And for 2021, uh, we would hope to retain the eligibility land inspection rate at 1%. Um, as long as the 2020 outturn uh, uh, demonstrates adequate control and uh, an acceptable error rate. So that's a quick run through the simplifications we hope for, uh, we will bring forward. Um, and we'll be using the primary powers that are now uh, within the Agriculture Act, bringing forward secondary legislation to give effect to those changes. Um, and that will be done via a, a, an affirmative uh, legislative procedure uh, within the Assembly. So, Mr. Chairman, that's a quick run through the, the main changes um, and say, uh, happy to take uh, questions from the committee. Okay. Um, thank you for that, uh, Norman. Uh, it's very helpful. Um, there have a number of members down here who want to ask questions, and uh, I'll just kick off me, myself. Norman, um, in relation to the um, paragraph 34 in this speech, it made reference to the uh, to penalties, and you also said yourself that uh, we will be removed from cap restraints. Do you see, in terms of a future policy direction, would, would, we, would, we, would we be re revisiting the appeals process, particularly the contradictory situation whereby the department can disregard the um, recommendations of the independent appeals panel? Yeah, uh, that's that's a piece of work that's uh, ongoing. Uh, so yes, we're 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 doing that uh, at, at at this point. Yeah, confirm that. Yeah. Um, the other thing I want to ask you as well. Uh, see, in relation to the um, our own agriculture act, and I know I mentioned this in the assembly on, on Tuesday, um, and I know that there's an aspiration for our own locally tailored, locally consulted agriculture act. And the view of this committee here, this agriculture and rural affairs, environment and rural affairs committee, was that there would be a sunset clause on the LCM, to, uh, which would give us a focus to have our own agriculture act, just like Wales had a, has a 2024. You know, why could we not have started the legislative process, for example, in February, and having our own consulted agriculture act by the end of the mandate? Um, well, we were very well down the road uh, in terms of uh, uh, within the uh, UK Agriculture Act. It provides us with uh, all the powers that we need uh, to start to make the changes that, that we've talked about. And to begin um, from a, a standing start, uh, to take it through a, a full stakeholder consultation exercise, build it into the legislative programme and have it delivered by the end of this mandate, uh, I think would have been uh, rather too, too ambitious. Um, 
if you, you know, eight wheels, for example, I mean, they, they have built a sunset clause of 2024. 20, um, I mean, I don't think we, anyone, uh, and certainly we don't think we could have brought forward a new set of uh, primary legislation in this area uh, by May of 2022. But we have uh, the powers that we need uh, within the Agriculture Act uh, to do uh, all that uh, we, we plan to do. And yes, we'd have that longer term ambition uh, to, to replace that uh, with a, a locally developed uh, bespoke Agriculture Act for Northern Ireland. I'll probably come back in again, but I'm going to just move around the room here. Patsy, Patsy McLone, can you hear me there? Which chair? Uh, what I wanted to find out was just, I was reading the, the papers there and uh, talking in particular, referring in particular to the hills and disadvantaged uh, farmland areas. Um, is there a direction or a thinking there, just um, kind of reading between the lines and trying to discern policy direction that um, those more emphasis be placed in those areas uh, on projects with environmental outcomes? And uh, the second element is, uh, if you could establish for me, uh, a key element of, of Pillar 2, or Pillar 2 itself, I should say, uh, the rural development support was very, very, very helpful for uh, many of our micro-businesses in the, in the rural areas and for, indeed, many other projects too. Uh, so can you give me any sort of, number one, clarity on the policy, uh, if you like, policy evolution in relation to the hills and, and disadvantaged farmland areas? And the second element is just uh, what direction you're going on rural development support yep uh, so on the uh, first one uh, i mean every every farm business has its own particular set uh, of assets um, and uh, if you look at where some of our most important environmental assets are located uh, the designated areas tend to be in the more disadvantaged farming areas uh, that's a very important asset and it's one where we'd certainly like to see a return uh, that can be made from the, uh, the the protection of that asset and the management of that asset. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something that uh, certainly will be an increased emphasis within uh, future policy going forward. Um, uh, as the Minister has also said, uh, coupled support is something that he's very keen to look at, uh, and that could also be something that uh, would be of significant uh, relevance to the more disadvantaged areas if you're looking at sucker cows or sheep. Uh, but having said that, every every area uh, of Northern Ireland should be able to deliver uh, better environmental performance. Uh, it's just different areas will have different emphasis um, and, and different opportunities. Um, so certainly scope uh, within all of that. I did talk about a basic resilience payment, uh, and certainly within that, there's scope to, to shape that as well, uh, to actually uh, deliver uh, the outcomes that, that we seek. Um, and uh, certainly there's... Uh, uh, a point to be considered there in terms of the resilience needs of different parts of Northern Ireland uh, and are some areas more uh, vulnerable than others and therefore should not be reflected in, in the policy. So that's all to be shipped up uh, over the coming uh, coming year. Secondly, then on, on rural development, uh, this is very much about agriculture and agricultural policy. There's a separate uh, rural policy strategy uh, beyond our development. Uh, what we don't have a line of sight on yet is shared prosperity fund um, and, and how that will fit into the overall jigsaw. But certainly that, that policy development work is, is, is well advanced uh, as well. Uh, this particular area we're talking about today is purely the, the agriculture yeah. and the agri-environment agenda. Okay, thank you. Uh, Thanks, Chair. Uh, before we move on, Norman, I just want to pick up on that there. 
the, um, do you have any insight as to when that consultation on the new rural policy will actually be out? Because we understood it should have been out for consultation in September, October. Um, no, I'm afraid we'll, we'll, we'll have to come back to you on that one. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, Rosemary? Thank you. Thank you, Norman. Um, Norman, I want to know, um, you, you spoke about you were going to retain for the current, for, the, for 2021, the active farmer payments. What is the future of that, or can you go a little bit further on that, expand a little bit further, please? Yeah, uh, well, we introduced the uh, the current active farmer provisions uh, back in 20, well, it was negotiated as part of the 2013 reform of CAP. Um, and uh, our objective there was to ensure that uh, support goes to genuine farmers, uh, those who are uh, actively uh, farming, taking the risks, taking the decisions associated with uh, the management uh, of, of land and, and farm businesses. Uh, and as a consequence of that, we went from a situation of about 37,000 people claiming support back in 2013 to about 24,000, 24,500 today. Uh, so we have succeeded in very much focusing in the support on the genuine farmer. Um, so we just go on, want to go um, to ensure that uh, we can continue to do that, that it, it is as targeted as we can make it in terms of ensuring that uh, support is for genuine uh, farm businesses and farmers. So we just want to take an opportunity to review uh, the approach that we have been taking uh, and make sure, making sure it remains fit for purpose. Okay, thank you. And uh, can I, can I uh, also ask a second question, yeah, Chair? Yeah. Um, it's in relation to the Young Farmers Scheme. Mm -hmm. um, you are, firstly, you're, they're only going to be allowed to claim for three years. That's the first thing. And the, and the second thing is you're going to cap it at 90 per year. Do you not think, um, is that, I have a bit of concern about that in the sense that um, a lot of our farmers are not the youngest of people and they're still practicing farming. And I do think if it's capped at 90, it'll maybe be, it'll discourage young people. Okay, in terms of just to clarify, just on the Young Farmer Scheme, the Young Farmer Scheme will remain in place uh, for 2021. Um, and once anybody is in the scheme, they avail of that support for five years. Um, what, we, what we said is that when it comes to applications uh, to the scheme, uh, we will basically give individuals three attempts, uh, no more than three attempts uh, to, to, to ent enter the scheme, uh, just to prevent uh, speculative, repeated speculative claims uh, or attempts to get in uh, under that measure. Currently, the Young Farmers Scheme already has uh, a 90 uh, hectare limit uh, that existed, has existed uh, since its creation uh, out of the 2013 uh, reform. But what we are saying is that when it comes to allocations out of the National Reserve, we would also align that uh, and make it a maximum of 90 uh, entitlements, uh, either to be allocated or to be topped up from the, 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 the reserve. So it's creating that uh, alignment. Uh, to make sure that we again we don't have um, some very large um, allocations being made out of the reserve. Okay, thank you. But there would be a very but there would be a very small number uh, falling into that category. Great, thanks. So it's for really a, a tidy up exercise. Thanks for clarification. Uh, Philip, uh, thanks, thanks, Norman. Just following on from Rosemary's point, Norman, can you tell us 
Uh, how many applications of young farmers and new entrants are coming on on a, on a yearly basis at the minute? Uh, Rosemary, would you have that sort of number? I mean, it's not a big number now. I mean, it was big uh, when this was first introduced, uh, but I think you're probably, you know, something just north of 100 a year or something like that. But we'll, we'll check that out and then get you a, a definitive figure on that one. Okay, uh, Norman, just to come in, um, we don't have a definitive figure. I would have said around 100 as well, but if we can come back on that, I think uh, we're happy to do that. Okay, fair enough. Well, the point I was going to make, uh, Minister, the other day when he was making a statement uh, alluded to an agri-environment programme. Can, can I ask, I mean, is this, the, there wasn't an awful lot of detail, so is this something that would be helped with the development of our own climate act here in the north? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so we're we're currently looking at uh, you know the future uh, of the agri environment uh, program. We have the EFS uh, operational at this point in time, um, and that will be uh, continued on uh, certainly um, into next year and cont can continue on. Um, so, but what we are looking at is for the effectively the next phase uh, of agri environment learning the lessons from what we've done uh, to date, uh, looking to other regions as well in terms of uh, what works, what doesn't work, but absolutely very much uh, has a, a significant role to play in, in terms of uh, the whole carbon uh, agenda. Uh, but we also need to uh, make sure that we do cover the issues around biodiversity, water quality, air quality, uh, soil health, uh, etc. These all need to be uh, addressed. Uh, and indeed, the, the overall agri-environment program, I think, probably will be at the core uh, of the, uh, the agricultural policy because uh, we have uh, significant issues that we do need to address uh, and we have an opportunity to do that. Uh, thank you. Um, before we move on, I just want to just pick up on something there. Philip mentioned, uh, and Norman, you mentioned the, the EFS. Um, myself and, and I'm aware of many MLAs have been, have been contacted by, by farmers who are on the EFS scheme and as a result of COVID and themselves and workers uh, isolating and the fact that the ground's sogging so wet at the minute. Um, is there any, I know that there's farmers who are to carry out some uh, water, water management works and they can't get machinery onto ground at the moment because, because of all of those issues. Is there any uh, facility for an extension to, uh, to, the, to the, the timelines that have been placed on uh, people on the scheme to get the, some of the work done due to those extenuating circumstances? Yeah, that, Jeremy, that's, that's something I would need to, to take away uh, and look at. Uh, so we need to come back to you on that one. Thank you. Uh, John? Thank you, Chair. Thanks, Norman. Uh, can I ask, uh, picking up on some of the points already made, and then on to, to, to a separate point, on the environmental sustainability uh, element of future support, uh, of which there's been much talk and reference already, um, can I ask what preparation is being done and if they're likely to be uh, targeted biodiversity or air quality uh, outcomes and, and timeframes around those, and if there are, when we are likely to see them. And on a separate point, again, in relation to preparation, I know, I know none of this is final yet, and all of us want the support to be as seamless as possible. But in relation to uh, the improved resilience talk, talked about, um, what preparation has been done for any changes required in support for change in market circumstances or other circumstances? 
Yeah. Okay. When it comes to targets, uh, I mean that's an important uh, aspect, uh, and that's a, a piece of work that we do now, now want to um, give a, a bit of uh, significant attention to to make sure that we actually have uh, the appropriate metrics. Um, um, this is a very important piece of work. Uh, I know, for example, in, in DEFRA, they're, they're, they're planning to spend a considerable amount of time and effort uh, to get this right. Uh, set the wrong target and it can set you off in the wrong direction uh, and it can actually drive the unintended consequence. Uh, so this is a piece of work that uh, we're now uh, looking, looking at to make sure we do have appropriate targets. Um, we need to also look at the how far forward we project uh, because uh, you're dealing with biological systems and uh, changing, um, you know, behaviors and, and, and outcomes. So this is not something that you, you look at a, a three-year or a five-year time horizon. You need to be looking uh, for the longer term and, and setting a long-term policy objective and direction. So it's a piece of work that uh, really will, will, will be progressing over the coming period. Um, and we would uh, hope to be able to, to publish then uh, what our targets uh, would be and, and possibly milestones along the way. Um, I think you did, you did touch on the issue, I suppose, of uh, transition there. Um, and that is an important aspect uh, of all of this. Um, and uh, it's very much to our thinking that uh, we need to set out the direction uh, very clearly. Um, and uh, it, it enables farmers to, to plan uh, their own businesses and, and understand uh, the direction of uh, support and policy going forward uh, and give time to, to adjust. Resilience is going to be part of it. Uh, resilience really, um, you know, it's the ability to, to bounce back uh, from or to bounce forward uh, from, from setbacks. And we want to look at all of that. What's the role of government uh, in all of that? But also what's the role of individual farm businesses uh, and trying to encourage uh, appropriate risk management um, within farm businesses um, and uh, make sure that that is part of uh, the development of businesses going forward that there is a, an appropriate attention paid uh, to this very important aspect to make sure that there there is that inbuilt resilience as far as possible um, so what's the responsibility of the individual producer uh, and and therefore what What's the demarcation, if you like, in terms of what businesses should, should do and possibly what, what government uh, needs to do to improve resilience? Thank you. Okay. Uh, Claire? Uh, Claire? Claire Billy? Um, yeah. yeah. Hi. Thanks. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Thanks. Um, just sort of following on from the, that target setting and looking at the, the longer term. Um, so when we're thinking about that agri-environment and looking at work, what works well elsewhere and what doesn't and DEFRA setting targets and obviously that's going to be shifting um, given the context that we're building this in. Is there any plans then to widen out who will be um, part of this? Will we be looking, is it strictly just within the agri-sector or will we be taking in things like the whole rural development um, sector or public health in particular coming up with a, a long-term food strategy? Uh, with this shift, yeah, uh, certainly one of one of the um, policy streams that we have uh, is uh, looking at uh, food policy. Um, so this was an area that wasn't part of the original framework on which we consulted, but uh, having thought about it long and hard, decided you know what there, there's a real opportunity here uh, on food using food as a 
something to which ar ar around which various departments and public bodies can actually cluster. Uh, so, and we have been working at that and getting very good engagement. Uh, we had a number of uh, innovation labs and, and workshops working with other government departments uh, and public bodies, and really. Using food as a theme, uh, it, it then starts to bring in things like health, education, tourism, waste, um, etc. So there's a lot of things, uh, and you know, uh, environment, of course. So there's a lot of things that can be clustered around a food theme, and actually gets getting departments to to work across boundaries uh, against um, uh, a, a, a food uh, agenda. Uh, so that's something that we're, we're getting real traction uh, from and uh, hopefully um, you know, we'll be able to uh, share that uh, more widely, uh, but certainly uh, it's, it's looking promising at this stage. Uh, we've never had a food agenda uh, or food policy as such within Northern Ireland before. Um, and uh, I do know that in, in, in England, uh, they're looking at this, uh, the Henry the Mo Moby work, uh, um, but uh, I would have to say that we, we started first, um, <laughs> so um, so we're, we're, we're progressing. That's and I think it, it has great potential. Yeah, I, I completely agree, and I'm very impressed with the, the Welsh model in particular, when they're just completely linking it into the whole rural development strategy um, to move ahead as well. Um, and I think that that would do an awful lot because when the minister's statement and he's making the claim that you know, no farmer left behind, and I think that's a real critical and, and important element of it, just given the levels of farm and farmer poverty and rural poverty here in Northern Ireland as well, and we've been without that strategy. And I do think that this is an opportunity to pull all that together and come up with something longer term that we can just set our own targets for. Thank yep, you. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Chair. Thank you, Norman. Norman, the Minister announced um, a new scheme for 21 and coupled support for protein crops, beans, peas and sweet lupins. Could you maybe tell us a wee bit more about the advantages of this and if you've started the wheels turning to put that in motion? Thank you. Yep. Uh, so uh, this is uh, early days uh, on this one, so uh, we will be coming out uh, hopefully before Christmas, uh, if not just shortly after, uh, with a, a short consultation just on the nature of uh, the regime. I say it's, uh, we're, we're describing it as a pilot at this stage because, um, you know, we probably will want to maybe refine it after the first year with the experience of the first year. Uh, so I think in, that, in the first year, it'll probably be very closely modeled on the, the regime that uh, could be del delivered under, under CAP uh, and indeed exists uh, in the Republic of Ireland. Um, so uh, that will probably uh, be the basis of uh, what we will introduce for 2021, uh, and then we can look at the experience of that in terms of whether there's any further tweaks or uh, improvements we need to, to make for future years. So this has really given uh, an opportunity, I suppose, within the within the arable sector primarily uh, for break crop. Uh, to introduce um, you know a different aspect into the uh, the, ro the, the rotation, uh, but also you're you're generating a a protein crop from within Northern Ireland, um, and uh, so it, uh, I suppose there's that scope then to reduce the uh, the level of imported proteins uh, into into Northern Ireland. Uh, so it has that sort of dub double effect. Um, it's a, it's an opportunity for the arable sector, uh, and it's a, a reduction in our net import uh, of uh, protein feeds into Northern Ireland. Very good. Thank you very much, Chip. Thank you, Chair. Hey, uh, Norman, um, see on the on the statement as well. Um, one of the paragraphs nine 
makes reference to the, um, the supply chain. Um, see, in terms of delivering any sort of fairness in the, in the supply chain, would that be helped if we had uh, minimum pricing legislation here and or our own local ombudsman to try and shift some of the profits that are made by the, um, by the, the, the very large corporations to move some of that profit back up the uh, production line towards the, the grassroots primary producer farmers? Yeah, uh, so in terms of minimum pricing, that's uh, nothing, that's nothing that we, we would be uh, uh, proposing to, to, to move in that direction. Uh, at the end of the day, we're, we're a trading uh, region. Uh, we need to be able to compete. Uh, we need to be able to sell our, our product uh, outside of uh, Northern Ireland. And uh, if we were to go down minimum pricing uh, model, um, then that would very, very severely constrain our ability to do that and would introduce all sorts of uh, distortions um, in, into our markets and I think uh, ultimately would be very counterproductive. Uh, so that's not a, uh, an approach that we are proposing uh, to take. In terms of uh, an ombudsman, uh, I mean, in fact, that takes you into competition policy. That's a reserved uh, matter. Um, but you know, the, uh, and so there, there is already a, a, a groceries adjudicator um, that exists uh, uh, for the UK, uh, looking at um, you know, the um, I suppose the thirteen major uh, retail um, organisations, making sure that there is fairness in their in their dealings uh, with their suppliers. Um, and uh, obviously, that's it's important that that continues to to operate uh, across across the UK uh, and, and uh, ensuring a, a level playing field across the UK market. Um, Norman, just just picking up on that, there, you know, the the groceries code adjudicator only applies to a small number of very very large uh, um, corporations here, and it doesn't apply to processors at all. I, I, I uh, as many people would say, really, as a toothless tiger that has no impact at all uh, here, certainly here. So, uh, how, how can we inject some fairness into supply chains? Because we, we know that, that farmers are getting a pittance for what they produce compared to what's made at the, at the bottom or at the end of the supply chain. Yeah, um, I suppose it's uh, it's one of those areas. If you have, uh, I suppose, more transparency uh, within the supply chain, then uh, you build trust, uh, you build relationships. Because um, maybe I suppose part of the problem is uh, around that that whole trust uh, agenda. At a at a macro level, if you do look at um, you know the, uh, for example, within our own uh, department, we publish information on the size and performance of the food processing sector. Uh, if you look at um, things like margins on turnover, uh, return on capital, um, you, there's no evidence uh, there of an of an industry that is making uh, excessive profit. Um, it, is, it is a sector that uh, is, is competitive, uh, and uh, the UK market is generally regarded as a, a very competitive, actually a very difficult market uh, for food because it is so competitive. Um, and I suppose the, the consequence of that is that um, you, you end up with uh, some returns uh, not being what, the, what they should be. Having said that, uh, if you do look at um, comparisons of producer prices, for example, within the, within the beef sector across Europe, generally Northern Ireland uh, is towards the top end uh, of producer returns. Um, and yet uh, we struggle to make a return from beef production. 
So I think there are issues in there that uh, we really do need to to look at um, in terms of how can we, um, from the market returns that are available to us, generate a better return. It takes you into the productivity agenda um, and making sure that we are actually keeping up uh, and indeed surpassing what our competitors are doing in terms of productivity and the ability to actually survive from the uh, the market returns that are available to us. And, and Norman, do you have any uh, assessment of the impact that Brexit will have on the, the future agriculture policy? Yeah, uh, so future policy or agriculture policy is a fully devolved matter. Uh, so the policy comes straight back to us and, and the other devolved regions from, from Brussels. Uh, so we have that uh, freedom of uh, policy uh, to develop uh, a regime that actually suits Northern Ireland. Now, there will be a few um, restrictions, I suppose, uh, on us overall. Under the protocol, uh, there will be an overall limit on the on the state aid, um, the total funding that we can uh, provide to agriculture, uh, and that's currently uh, under negotiation. Um, so that's one. Secondly, within that, there will be a, a certain restriction on the, the proportion of that that can be put towards couple support. Um, but more practically, I suppose we also have to be aware that you know um, within. Uh, this island, uh, there'll, there'll be one part operating under a domestic uh, agenda, another under uh, a CAP agenda, um, but operating within a single competitive market. So we can't ignore what's happening elsewhere. And indeed, we can't ignore what's happening in GB either. Um, so it, it is, we, we sit in that spot where we have to, we, we can't exist in isolation. Um, and I suppose that, that takes me back to the point about minimum pricing, same, same issue. You can't uh, lock yourself off from the rest of the world. You need to be aware of what's happening in other areas and ensuring that the, the regime that you put in place actually enables the industry to develop, to compete uh, and to be successful. Um, thank you, Norman. Uh, Claire, you're looking back in there. Thank you, Chair. Um, just maybe following on from that one in terms of you know maybe how to address um, minimum pricing in other ways. Um, are we thinking? I mean, I know that looking ahead, we're likely to see elements such as food labelling being used. You know, and um, footprint labelling in particular um, coming in 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 other areas. Is that something that we're looking at um, for our local producers? Um, we, we remain under uh, the labelling requirements of uh, the, the EU, uh, that's part of the protocol, uh, so our labelling, uh, food labelling uh, regulations will be effectively a continuation of, of what we have uh, at the minute. Uh, but I suppose more, more broadly, um, and I suppose it's, it's a, an evolution like working of the, the food strategy or food framework as well, uh, it's, it's really What's what's a particular narrative, uh, the the marketing message that Northern Ireland wishes to portray going forward? Uh, what what is it about our food that uh, actually uh, has a unique selling point, and and how can we actually market that and project that uh, into different uh, in different areas and actually earn a return? Uh, so I think it's part of that overall package that we need to look at um, and and work with the food processing sector in, in particular, in terms of actually uh, taking that message out into uh, you know a, a broader broader world uh, yes GB remains an important market uh, but we need to look to other markets as well uh, and be quite strategic in terms of the ones that we pick to seek to develop um, and, and build uh, a significant presence 
Um, so I think there, there, there are certainly opportunities uh, around all of that and to create that narrative for Northern Ireland agri-food as a whole. Yeah, no, I completely that, agree. I think that we've missed it for a long, long time. We see other regions building up that whole um, that whole narrative um, and, and I think it's really important, but that's good to know. So if, if we do see moves from the EU to move to the likes of footprint labelling, that would be a requirement for us to, to do as well then? Yes, uh, we're, we're, we'll yeah. be covered uh, by that, by labelling, uh, any changes to EU labelling requirements, yeah. Thank you. Okay. Okay, um, Norman and Rosemary, thank you very, very much for your attendance here uh, this morning and uh, for, again, a comprehensive briefing and for taking a range of questions from uh, the members. Uh, thank you very much. So we're going to just take uh, our ease for a couple of minutes until the UFU get themselves prepared to come online. Okay. <coughs> okay, members, we're resuming the, the weekly meeting now, uh, item three in the agenda. We have oral evidence from the Ulster Farmers Union on the future of agricultural policy and basic payment. I'd like to welcome by Starleaf, uh, Victor Chestnut, the President, David Brown, the Deputy President, William Irvine, the Deputy President, and the uh, Wesley Aston, the CEO. Um, uh, the, the, the UFU have been provided with a copy of Minister Pooch's statement from Tuesday and uh, have been listening to the briefing we have just received from DERA. And I understand that you have to be away for another engagement uh, just after 11, so uh, we'll, be as, uh, we'll be as concise as we can. So if you could take maybe 10 minutes or so to brief the committee, and then she will ask some questions uh, and take it from there. And um, Okay, thank you very much. Whoever wants to kick off there. Good morning. Good morning, and, and thanks for having us in the UFU. You can all hear all right, yeah? Yes, Good, good. Uh, as I say, thanks for having us from the UFU uh, at this crucial time in, in agriculture and policy change in Northern Ireland. Um, so I'll just set the scene, really. You know, this all came about uh, after the, the 2017 and, and the, the, the move, move away to, uh, uh, to Brexit, I suppose, and coming away from the cap. So at that time, uh, our policy committee started to consider options for a new domestic agricultural policy under three cornerstones, and the cornerstones were productivity, sustainability, and resilience. Uh, so the union's position that was while the importance of direct support will be related to any trade agreements that are reached, there are a number of key overarching principles that are essential maintain at least uh, the level of existing support and investment for Northern Ireland farming, and I think we've maybe achieved that for the meantime anyway, for flexibility through devolution to best adapt a common policy framework to the different regional needs of farming, and, and we think that's very important to have that flexibility in Northern Ireland and to provide for a sufficient deliberate implementation transition to give individual farm businesses the necessary time to adapt, and that support should also be targeted at those who actively take the risks in primary food production. The UFU's vision is for productive, progressive, sustainable and most importantly profitable farming sector. We are now in a time of unprecedented change which presents once in a generation opportunity to shape the future of Northern Ireland agriculture and we want to work with the government and other industry partners to realise this. Against this background, we welcome the clarification given by the Minister earlier this week 
on the simplification and the improvement of the governance rules intended for a direct support next year. We have been lobbying for that for some time and also on his commitment to work with industry and other stakeholders to move towards something new which better addresses the needs of Northern Ireland agriculture. We also welcome the pilot scheme announced for protein crops, something again that we have been looking for. So work has begun in our policy committees uh, at an industry level to feed into this progress uh, process. We have uh, had Anderson's uh, Centre uh, involved in, 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 in what future support the beef industry would need. They're already, they have that work completed uh, and they're already underway with the dairy industry and indeed the arable side is working too. So I'll maybe at this stage ask David to say a brief word on the livestock committees and William to, to have a brief word on where the arable sector is at. Thank you. Thank you, President. Um, I suppose, look, uh, the President has, has alluded to the fact that obviously the work in relation to um, looking to the future has already begun within UFU. Um, we've had, uh, um, I suppose, uh, the report which I believe the ERA Committee has received uh, from the Anderson Centre uh, based on the beef uh, dairy. Uh, Andersons are currently working on that. Uh, we have a timeline, hopefully. Uh, at least if we can stick to that timeline, that they hope to deliver that by the end of January. So we would like to think that too can feed in uh, to, uh, obviously, considerations. Uh, and I think, you know, there is a recognition and an acknowledgement that uh, in reality, you know, any future support will be about delivering outcomes. And that has been the focus. Uh, I, I'm not sure if, if perhaps if you've had time uh, to look over some of the uh, suggestions that, that are in that uh, beef report from Anderson's. But in reality, I suppose it's a recognition that while um, you know, the minister has, has made it clear that there will be a resilience payment, in other words, a, base, a baseline payment, that in terms of actually delivering uh, for the environment and so forth, um, you know, we, we absolutely accept that you know, our, our farmers uh, in all sectors uh, are looking towards uh, what mechanisms and manner they would be able to do that. I suppose on another point, just uh, I suppose which was highlighted, uh, within that Anderson's report and, and is pretty, uh, I suppose, topical at the minute uh, relating to Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol is the fact that uh, obviously we will be aligned with ROA. Um, I mean, that, uh, I suppose, there's a, a huge distinction there in terms of the support. Uh, and I know the Minister this week has alluded to the fact that he is considering a couple support towards um, both the sucklers and, and sheep he referred to, but in reality, he is limited uh, in the percentage uh, under the Northern Ireland Protocol. He's limited to the percentage uh, that he can move uh, towards that couple support. And, you know, in the south of Ireland, and the, there's a number of acronyms that I'll not, I'll not go into the detail of. The, the beep schemes, beam schemes, which are payments, genetic payments uh, towards uh, suckler calves, um, payments on environmental uh, benefits. Uh, there is also a sheep payment. Uh, and, and I suppose all of those, like £40 a calf, £120 a hectare, uh, the sheep, £10 a yo, all of those payments are, are payments which do not exist in, in the north and ultimately uh, are a challenge to our industry in the beef sector particularly that uh, they're competing uh, you know, on, on an all-island basis. It is Irish beef at the end of the day that we want to see continuing to go across and supply the UK market, the GB market. 
and and yet uh, those payments uh, directly into into uh, I suppose the support in that sector in, in the south of Ireland uh, do not do not exist currently uh, within uh, our suckler or beef sector, which uh, I suppose you could describe as being as being vulnerable. Uh, but in, in reality, I suppose it is mainly those grass-based sectors that um, you know we, we would see as uh, challenged. And, and again, I wouldn't want to underestimate the challenge in the dairy sector either, uh, and the volatility that exists there. Thank you, David. Thank you, William. Over to you. Sorry. Sorry, William. You're mute. William, William, yeah. William, William Irvine, not William Irvine now. He's trying to speak right enough. William Irvine. <laughs> both, both, both are mom men as well, sir. So. That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, ap apologies for starting off on mute there. I, I spend a lot of time talking to myself on <laughs> recent times on Teams meetings. Welcome to my but, but, uh, This morning, I'm going to briefly address the situation for cereals, potatoes and vegetables. And... Uh, in, in many respects, these three sectors uh, feel like forgotten sectors, and uh, especially cereals and potatoes, the, the acreage has been in decline over many years. So it has been said previously about we're being at a, a crossroads and a time of significant change for agriculture, and it's a, a, a perfect time to readdress a, the, the support that cereals potatoes and, and vegetables receive. And currently within the union, we're working on a, a joint paper over these three sectors because there's many similarities in them. They're soil-based, they involve in play and the working of the soil. And we felt we could make a better and more concise case over the three sectors. And uh, that we hope to have that, uh, we hope to see it before the end of this year and then uh, debate it internally and hopefully through January it will be available for wider, uh, wider look at. Uh, and, and just on that, we we'll, we'll welcome the, the announcement about the protein payments because that, that, that is a helpful uh, direction to go. But on the big picture of this, if, if these sectors could achieve a, a better place within the Northern Ireland food story, it it would create a better balance across Northern Ireland in, in food production, and it it would bring benefits to soil health and environment benefits too, due to proper rotations and more a more balanced approach. So, a uh, that's the direction we're moving on. And when when we're looking at at what might be available, we're very aware of what's happening. In, in Southern Ireland and uh, through TAMS grant aid support and other support, they have a lot of advantages over us. The, the recent uh, FBIS grant that's just been announced, by and large, does not deliver for, the, for these sectors. And uh, they, they could, they, it would make a significant difference to the viability of these sectors if they were getting similar support as is received in the South. So, so that, that's my piece for this morning. Thank you, William. Thank you, Declan, over to you. All right, thank you. Thank you, Victor. 
Um, again, I want to thank you for that that that, uh, that um, very helpful overview and um, re report to us. Uh, I suppose I want to pick up from from any of you as, as well. Uh, before we, and you you may well have been listening in there, uh, where I touched on the whole issue of the, the injecting a bit of fairness into the food supply chain. Um, has there, you have you any? Assessment of how that could could be could be achieved because you will know better than uh, any of us. Uh, you know that the, the the price that you get for your primary produce would be very small compared to what the ultimate profit is made at the end of the uh, production or the food supply retail chain. Yes, this is something that we have always been uh, exercised on. You know, if you take the case of a turnip, I think the farmer was getting eight pence and they were being sold in the supermarket shelves for anything between 80, 88 and 112 pence. That was a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, we feel that, that that is wrong. We would like more back. But having said that, we do realise that we're in a very competitive industry and uh, we've got to compete to get our markets. Um, we do encourage uh, longer term contracts. We're seeing small amounts of milk being, being, uh, being offered longer term contracts but you know i think that you know it's up to a maximum of 30 percent um some of the contracts are just five or ten percent which might be a, 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 a comfort to some people but it's it's fairly small in relation to the output you have from the farm and and the difficulty is while you can maybe log in uh, a proportion of your milk at a certain price for three years you can't log in any inputs so basically, you're you're loving them in on one side and not on the other. So it is an ongoing challenge, yes. Um, and uh, David, are you loving in there? I, yeah, well, I was just going to comment. I suppose, look, really, you know, from a UFU perspective, um, this is about protecting family farms and family businesses because ultimately, at the end of the day, um, you know, Ireland's not called the Emerald Isle for no reason. It's it's very. Uh, capable and able uh, on a grass-based system of competing in dairy and beef and so on. But uh, I suppose the point I wanted to make was uh, that competition uh, would would absolutely be undermined. Uh, and, and you're probably well enough aware as a committee of the case we've been making around imports and, and the standard of those imports. But if, if those imports were to come in um, from, from other regions, uh, I, I guess at the end of the day we, we would have to recognise that uh, it would absolutely undermine the production systems that we have, and we do not want to see a move towards, uh, you know, huge feedlots and all of that. We want to protect the, the structure, the societal, uh, I suppose, um, interests that we have in, in, in the type of farming that exists in our country. Um, and just before we move around here, just on, on that topic there, um, David, that you raised, um, but Victor, Victor, you have uh, another very important role on the, the commissions you have, and there's some uh, uh, good news re recently about it being brought on to like a statutory footing. Uh, what, uh, what, could you elaborate on what important role, no doubt, it can play in terms of uh, this issue of protecting our, our uh, food security and standards? Yes, uh, you know, the, the Commission's working away. We've had regional road, road shows, and I would say it's fair to say, and it's not me blowing our own trumpet, but that the, the passion for food and food production in the Northern Ireland road show was, if not the top, one of the top uh, regions that we, that we had. Um, that is starting to come through that, you know, food is important. The, the quality of the food we eat and the, the environmental footprint of the food that we have 
uh, and the uh, animal welfare of the food that we have. So, yeah, it was very important to get that in the statute books, uh, that any deal, any future trade deal would be able to be scrutinised. What we really want as a trade commission and what we're lobbying for is that we have an input with those who are negotiating any trade deal throughout the negotiation uh, period, rather than just leaving it to the end whenever the MPs would be faced with a yes or no decision. So basically what, we're, what our aims are is to try to uh, improve animal welfare worldwide, to also improve environmental standards worldwide, and uh, not to lower the production standards in the UK. It makes no sense at all to uh, look after our environmental standards and our animal welfare standards in this country and then try to ask them to compete with stuff produced to a totally different system in other, in other parts of the world. Um, you know, whether that's removing rainforests uh, to provide more ground for, for beef production in Brazil or whether it's putting in twice the amount of chickens in a shed in America and then cleaning them up with chlorine. You know, we do not, and I do think our consumers in the UK want food produced to lower production. I think our consumers have backed us very well. In fact, COVID-19 has made people more aware of the food they eat, and, and, and maybe it was something that the busyness of life before COVID had maybe meant that there was less that there was less attention taken to the food that, that we eat. And as Sir Henry, Henry Dimble has said, there's nothing more important than the food that we eat. Uh, thanks for that, Victor. And it's good to have a, a, local, person, a local person like yourself at the, at the coalface, at the very cutting edge of, of agriculture and food production uh, on that commission. Wesley, you have your virtual hand up here to looking in. I do have my virtual hand up. Thank, thank you, Chairman. If I could just pick up on what the President has said in relation to the Trade and Agriculture Commission, and particularly in relation to the sort of ongoing negotiation that the UK are having with, with third countries. Uh, there's another sort of structure in there, which is uh, various trade advisory groups, like one for agri-food at the UK level. I actually sit on that, and we are now having regular discussions with the Department of International Trade at the UK level in terms of actually what they're doing around the negotiations with the likes of um, the US and Australia. I think from our perspective, there's a couple of very key things, positive things that are coming out of this. The first one is that they're very clear in that they are identifying sensitive sectors and agri-food uh, hasn't actually been put on the table yet in most cases um, because that's further down the line and they, certainly the UK now recognise the sensitivities around food trade if you like as opposed to automotives or any, anything else like that. I think the other one is picking up on the point that, that the President has said. Um, we are actually getting direct input into these things now uh, and there's sort of offensive and defensive asks and you know, there's a lot more engagement going forward than there would have been previously. So it's encouraging to see that happening. Uh, and uh, certainly, you know, we are trying to shape things going forward as best we can. Thank you, Wesley. Um, I'm going to move around the room here. William, uh, the other William from Murmah. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, you're very welcome. Thank you for your presentation. And uh, I think uh, it's good to see that you're broadly welcoming the Minister's uh, approach, your approach. On coupled support, um, we are the minister will be tied to the percentage that he can direct in that way. Do you not think it's vitally important that the most vulnerable sectors, given that there's only a certain percentage that can be targeted uh, to coupled support, that the sectors most vulnerable should be the ones that would be, be able to avail of this? 
Yes, uh, we would totally agree with that. And uh, David has, has highlighted the differences between different schemes that are available uh, south of the border uh, than, than is here. So we're, uh, you know, we're totally agreeable that, that uh, uh, the vulnerable sectors are the one that should, should receive those uh, coupled support. Yeah, I, th I think that would be vital because I mean, they are they are sectors that are. We all we all cry, and everyone will put their hand out looking more. But there are sectors that are doing reasonably well, um, and other sectors that have been struggling for some time. So I, I do think it is important that we identify the sectors most in need and, and try and target those sectors. Uh, yeah. Fairness in the food supply chain has been has been an issue for many many years. Uh, when I was chair of the committee, and even long before that, and we don't we never seem to be able to get. Um, much headway on that. The farmer at the end of the day seems to be the price taker, not the price maker. The supermarket can dictate what they buy at and what they sell at. And uh, uh, it is a real challenge to get that bit of fairness into the supply chain that we would need, and I'm sure you'll accept that. But I'm, I'm not so sure how we do that, but it seems a big challenge to, to get there. Yeah, uh, totally, totally agree. Like the good book says, uh, the farmer should be it should be the first to receive a share of their crops, and it seems to have got turned in its head now that we seem to be the last that get rewarded. So uh, you know, everybody else gets their cut out, and the farmer gets the wee bit that's left. Somehow we've worked, have to got to work together in supply chains that linked up that bring the whole supply chain along for sustainability. To uh, you know, for our farm businesses, but not only our farm businesses, our food <coughs> supply, and indeed our environmental uh, footprint on the on the ground, we do we do need to be profitable. That's the main thing. Okay. Okay. Um, okay we're going to move round now to uh, Rosemary. Thank you. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for your presentation. Um, David, my questions addressed to you. Seemed to be when you were speaking there, um, I got I got the impression that you were really concerned about, particularly the beef industry, and that you were not on a level playing field with the Republic of Ireland. Um, how do you think going forward the minister should address that? Well, I, I suppose I, I would first and foremost want to acknowledge and recognise that. Um, you know, there is a price differential. Uh, I mean, because our beef can go into the GB market as red tractor, uh, we do get uh, pence per kilo uh, more than, than they do for, for Irish beef currently. But that differential that I've described in terms of, of, I suppose, going forward at the end of the day, given where we are with this Northern Ireland protocol, like ultimately Northern, Northern Ireland will be competing uh, with uh, Irish beef going, in, going into the UK marketplace and I, I suppose uh, I draw some comfort from uh, the Minister's uh, message uh, in the Assembly where, where he said uh, in looking at vulnerable sectors that he was considering uh, the suckler, suckler sector and the sheep sector because both of those um, and I think you know anybody who, who has ever taken time to have a look um, at, at the figures that, that come out from, from the likes of CAFRI and, and the organisations that do uh, some benchmarking and recording will, will acknowledge that, um, you know, I think even taking a look at our single farm payment year on year, 
there are years, and, and the, the past year was an example of it, where, in actual fact, the total income from farming was, in actual fact, on a par with what the total, uh, I suppose, pot of money that came in in single farm payment. There are years where it's in around 80, 80 85 percent. It's, it's average in that. So basically what we're saying is, uh, you know, if the whole of agriculture in Northern Ireland is so dependent, and it really is dependent on that support package, um, and, you know, uh, Mr. Erwin there has alluded to the fact that at times some of the sectors, uh, you know, are in a profit-making place. Um, unfortunately, those, uh, those sectors tend to be at, at the bottom of that pile. And uh, I guess at the end of the day, um, looking at, at vulnerable sectors, and, and you're right, uh, I suppose the point was made that everybody will, will see that they need or they should be entitled. But in reality, you know, I, I think... The dairy sector at times suffers from the volatility that exists. While there's years it can be profitable, there are years their hand is out and, and they need that single farm payment just as much as, as any other sector. But I think on a consistent basis, um, addressing that vulnerable, vulnerability uh, is something that we would welcome. Okay. okay. And um, the other uh, question I want to ask uh, Victor for you, and that's in how do you... Again, looking at the minister's statement, how do, what will you be, how will you be addressing this situation where the farmer seems to be the bottom of the pile? And it seems to be at the moment that supermarkets are dictating the prices, your your food prices, as you said, you know, in milk, etc. What you get for milk? How are you going to lobby the minister to make sure that that's turned on its head? Well, the one thing is we, we, we uh, engage with supermarkets in the last few years. And the one thing we must say about our supermarket trade is that they do support Red Tractor UK produce and British produce, which basically is our produce. And that's why the price differential is there between our beef and our OI beef. So we, we want the lobby to continue that. The service industry basically is the one that lets us down. The, the, you know, the, the, they just seem to buy it from the cheapest source. So we have a job of work to do in the service industry as well. Yes, supermarkets will always be under a price. Uh, you know, price will be important to them, but, um, and I don't mean to, flippant, to be flippant in this, but they are supporting us by buying our produce, and it's a constant battle to get the right, the right uh, uh, recompense for it. But the service industry, if the service industry, and indeed government procurement, was supporting us the way the retail would be, that would help increase demand for our produce. So, you know, I'm keen not just to put, point the finger straight at the supermarket here because the supermarkets are, uh, and the British consumer, are being very loyal to, to British food and red tractor food, and it is commanding a premium, so we want to retain that. Okay. okay. Um, just we move on to the next speaker. Uh, David, I just want to just pick up on something that you mentioned there in, in relation to Rosemary's question. Um, about the disparity between North and South because of different levels of support. What would be the implications of the, um, the North not being included in the PGA uh, bid for, um, for beef? Well, it's absolutely something from the very outset, and, and I appreciate uh, William uh, Irvine has taken over that responsibility in the beef sector, but I mean, I made representations to Board B right back early part of this year before they really put theirs out to consultation. 
And I suppose the point we were making was that uh, you know Northern Ireland in the past has supplied Albert Hain, has supplied different, um, I suppose, uh, parts of, of Europe, uh, and, and it has always been on that Irish grass-fed uh, uh, label. You know, I mean, it hasn't been a PGA, but that has been the marketing tool that uh, our processors and the beef industry have used. So therefore, I suppose it was highlighted very quickly to us that um, if, uh, for example, the south of Ireland was, was able to achieve uh, a beef PGA based on grass-fed, uh, then that would preclude Northern Ireland from, from using that terminology and language. Uh, in other words, the geographic indicator would be solely for Southern Ireland. Now, in initial discussions, uh, you know, with, with both DAFM and Board B, uh, they seemed quite open uh, to the possibility of Northern Ireland joining in uh, and, and being part of that. Um, but, like, to be honest with you, at, at present, we are struggling uh, to get that uh, recognition because they're putting their application in, as, as I understand, uh, to Europe. And ultimately, you know, a geographic indicator, by the very nature of its name, is about a geographical area. And if it's put in on the basis of the 26 counties, excluding the six counties, it is a much, much more difficult, if not nigh on impossible. And that is the advice we have got from both DERA and DEFRA, that if we're not included from the outset, it would be very difficult for us to be included at a later stage, and that would uh, really disadvantage. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, while I've pointed to the fact that you know a lot of our beef uh, goes across into the GB marketplace, uh, in reality, we're moving into a new place where uh, you know we want access uh, to, to other markets as well. And uh, really, if that um, grass-fed PGA uh, is to deliver, it should deliver for the whole island of Ireland. Um, David, th thanks for elaborating that there. Um, I think that's a really crucial point, and it doesn't make sense. You know, the, 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 the cattle, the beef is reared here in this part of the island. It's the exact same standards, uh, the exact same uh, uh, traceability as uh, the rest of the island. And, and that's particularly probably very acute down in Fermanagh, where you're from yourself, and Rosemary, where, where virtually the neighbouring farms are from one jurisdiction, uh, and the farms in this, uh, the northern jurisdiction, they're, they're, they're rare to the exact same standards. So it doesn't make sense at all. And maybe that's something that we maybe should look at <coughs> in the committee here. So, so I'm going to move on here uh, quickly. Claire, Claire Billy. Claire? Thanks very much. Chair, cheers. Um, that's um, yeah. There's just loads of questions I may have, but just a wee quick one following up um, on the conversation that has already happened around supermarkets and supporting um, local produce and the red tractor. Is there any merit in having or uh, potentially having um, something like a regulation on those large supermarkets or large corporations selling here that um, that they would have to source local um, if they're selling here? Uh, the, the, the logistics of these large supermarkets are such that a lot of the distribution centres are across the water. Mm -hmm. While our red tractor produce is recognised as British, I don't see I don't see that regulation being a lot of good to our small region. Having said that, we do thank our public and our co our, our customers for supporting local. I think as a food as a society. We've got used to having every produce three, six, five days a year. There's no seasonality of produce. And I think we've actually done ourselves a disservice by doing that. You know, you used to look forward to the strawberries coming. 
in May. And now it's you have them the whole winter through, so there's never any, you know, and you used to have lamb at Easter. There used to be seasoned for everything, and now our supermarkets have, have uh, it's on the, the shelf three, six, five days a year. I don't think as a, as a society it has really helped us when you, when you examine it, but that, that's another story, and maybe getting off subject a wee bit. <laughs> but, uh, I completely agree with you. That's good. <laughs> but maybe the question I was sort of thinking about, I mean, we're looking at scenario planning and we're looking at what's working elsewhere in terms of the the, the basic payments and stuff. So I just wanted to ask your opinion. Is there one in particular or is there a good model out there that you would like to see adopted here? Um, I know that we can have our local context and, and tailor it to our own need, um, but just as a general system, um, is there one that the EFU would favour? We're not going to look at something else that suits another country. We think we're unique, and that's what our committees are spending time, have spent time, our, beef, our red meat sector, our beef and sheep sector, have spent a lot of time with NAMIA, with the LMC, on that Anderson's report. Our dairy uh, committee's doing the same with Anderson's, and as William says, the arable side's doing the same. So we're looking for a bespoke arrangement that suits Northern Ireland agriculture, so that we can go forward, both profitable, sustainable, and sustainable means sustainable for the farm and family, it means sustainable for the environment, and it means sustainable for profitability. So, you know, and we need to be progressive. So we can't have anything that, that, that holds us back in any of those fronts, because if we're not profitable, we can't invest in the environment. In my experience, the firms that did the most environmental works were the ones that were the most profitable. Interesting. Thank you. Uh, can I just ask my last one? Just, and I don't know, this might be a wee bit off track, but I was looking in at the um, NUF's reports on net zero, and, and they've set themselves a target of 20, the year 2040 um, to be, you know, the date for carbon friendly farming. Um, and I'm just sort of wondering if you have any thoughts on that, or are we anywhere near getting as detailed in terms of the, the policy content, the, the deadlines, you know, linking that into energy policy, infrastructure for the farming sector, um, planning, sustainable land management, you know, are we looking at things in the whole um, at that level here in Northern Ireland? Yes, we're doing a lot of work with the sustainable management group doing work, but why did we not come out and say, pick a date out there and say, say, say that we're going to be carbon neutral then. We need to know where we're at and what the journey is that we have to go. And that is why we as a union haven't come out and said we're going to be carbon neutral by X date in the future. Look, it's our ambition to be there as soon as possible. Um, but until we actually know where we are and what process we need to, we need to engage in to, to, to get there, Plucking a figure out there, it's very good for headlines, but in reality, you know what I mean, we need to know what we have to do. As soon as we know exactly the measurements, the sequestration of our hedges in Northern Ireland, we have more hedge rows in Northern Ireland for land mass than anywhere else, especially parts of the UK where all you get, you know, single crops in East England and massive fields of 500 acres when our, when our farms are only a quarter of that size. You know, our hedgerows do it. We need to measure that, find out what the sequestration is. Um, I, I remember just uh, over a year ago being at a beekeepers conference and uh, I asked the beekeepers, what is it you want us farmers to, to do for you? And I was expecting, the, the, the answer I was expecting was grow pollinator mixes and do all this. 
and the, the, the man I was talking to completely shocked me. He said, leave your hedge cutter in the shed. Let your hedges go a metre higher and a metre wider. And he says, that will be a great haven for bees. It will also uh, capture a million tonne of, of uh, CO2 extra. So there is things that we as farmers can do. Our, our countryside, I think, looks well. I think it looks the way that the, the, the public want it, and we can increase that. I think every field shouldn't have a wire fence round out the outside. It should have a, a hedge. And not against removing hedges. In fact, if an application in to remove one hedge between two fields to make them more uh, farming friendly myself, but for the hedge I'm removing, I've put in, you know, my mitigation that I'm going to plant twice that length along the bottom of the field. So I think, you know, we, we need that flexibility to take a hedge out and maybe twice the size or something like that there. But I think we need to, in answer to your question, we need to correctly measure how our farming sequating carbon at the minute. We need to know where we stand before we can pick a date. Brilliant. Thank you, Vic. That's, that's great. And yeah, I absolutely agree. Bring down the fences and build and plant more hedges. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, we're going to move on around here. Uh, I think David wants it in there. Oh, sorry. Sorry, uh, oh, sorry. Oh. sorry Chair. Sorry, uh, just uh, one particular point which I want to draw to the attention of the committee, and, and that it'd be remiss of me not to do so, and that is obviously discussions that will, will take place uh, within the Assembly around uh, RHA and, and in reality you know a lot of our poultry industry uh, have, have invested and put money into uh, biomass mm -hmm. and you know the figures that we're getting and it's pertaining to what Claire's asking around carbon you know we have to have a holistic approach to this you know the, the removal of, of biomass in terms of uh, you know heating poultry sheds and it's not just about farms of course but in reality, the figures that we have, uh, have been fed back there, that that would, uh, you know, retaining it would, would uh, keep uh, reduced carbon by 7% in Northern Ireland. So there, there needs to be a holistic approach in terms of, you know, how we approach, uh, I suppose, uh, getting to that date and, and setting a date at some point where we, we uh, can target uh, in order to, to achieve uh, this net zero. So uh, all of that is, is part and parcel of what is impacting on agriculture as well. Thank you. John? Thank you, Chair. Um, I have two questions, and with your permission, I'll deal with them separately, uh, if that's okay. Yeah. The first question is around, and I'll thank, thank our, our guests for their presentations and information, by the way. Uh, I want to ask around the uh, evolving situation under which it appears Northern Ireland goods could move freely within the EU, but not perhaps into regions with which the EU has free trade agreements. And I'm keen to know, is that likely to be a problem? If it is, what the scale of the problem will be? And if the, the Farmers Union have received any assurances from UK government at this stage of what actions it's taking um, in the current negotiations? Yeah, I'll maybe start on that one. Yeah, this is a concern of ours. 30% um, of our milk goes south for processing. Some of that comes back into the UK market. Some of that stays in the European market. But in effect, quite a lot of it goes into maybe Asia and Africa in powder form. Now, uh, this is something uh, we, we as an Ulster Farmers Union meet with AFA regularly. Um, and by the way, just on the last PTA uh, conversation, AFA are supportive of Northern Ireland being included uh, in that PTA application, but that's by the way. 
Um, yeah, the AFA, um, we, with the last time they were meeting Simon Coveney just after we had our meeting, and we asked them if they would raise this position with Simon Coveney. And we did hear about a week or 10 days later where Simon Coveney was lobbying the EU to say that, uh, you know, to, to that very effect that Northern Ireland goods and, in fact, he went further, uh, businesses would be eligible to enter into EU third country trade deals. The UK government tell us that's not in their remit and the EU say that the third country has to be contacted. Now, as you would, be, as you would expect, we have been contacting our uh, processors south of the border um, and some of them are coming back saying, look, we have been contacting our uh, markets and uh, uh, one, of the, one of them said that, uh, I, I forget the exact figures, but over 90% of their third country uh, contacts where they were selling their product to were quite happy with product from Northern Ireland. Um, and, and they said they would just disregard the others, they were quite small anyway. But it is a concern going forward, if there was a hiccup, that would stop normal trade flows. And it would, to me, we need to have this uh, facility that we can go into EU trade deals or UK trade deals, otherwise the pro protocol doesn't work as it's intended to. Chair, yeah, I'm very grateful for that answer and the, the frankness of that answer. It might be something perhaps the committee could look at in terms of previous discussions with the House Lords Committee yeah. or in, in, in relation to other actions that we might be able to take. The second question is around um, the, the uh, movement of product from GB to NI, and I'm thinking in particular of uh, potatoes, which are brought in here, I understand, from Lincolnshire and Cambridgeshire, largely for chipping and distributed by uh, people locally, and also seed potatoes which come from Scotland, mostly, I understand, to Northern Ireland. Um, is there an awareness of problems that might arise in relation to the movement of those goods? And do, do, do you envisage problems with that? Yes, it's not only seed potatoes, it's cereal seed and grass seeds, and also chemicals are in that. I'm going to reach over to William, maybe to take that one. We are aware of that. We are working on it. Uh, um, the, the whole issue is that until the UK gets third country status, there isn't any SPS control paperwork that can enable that to happen. The, the Scotch, who would send a lot of seed potatoes here, are already on that case. But I'll ask William if he wants to comment and maybe steal your thunder, William. But Thank you. Yeah, you're, you're okay. Yeah, Northern Ireland uses quite a bit of a seed potato that's sourced in Scotland and uh, from from the 1st of January whether there's a deal or whether there's not a deal potatoes will be a will be checks border checks because uh, there'll be effectively TB potatoes will effectively be coming from a third country into the EU and uh, that that will be a hiccup in that in that trade now, uh, our local potato growers are quite keen that they could up their production uh, and uh, use this as an opportunity. But but the level of trade and a uh, trade begets trade. So the the, it, it, the freer that could work, it would be the better for the whole industry. And the the, the cereal seeds to a. Uh, quite largely sourced from GB and uh, it's, it's all uncertainty at the minute and qu quite a lot of growers are 
for, for this year are trying to have their arrangements all made before the end of the year, but that has a big financial impact on them to, to do that. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I'll just come in there on the, you know, the announcement that there may be a, a protein crop payment. The seed for that will undoubtedly have to come from UK mainland, or the majority of it. And if we don't get this sorted out, the, the fact of the matter is it won't be grown in Northern Ireland. You can't grow that without seed. So this does need to be sorted out. You know, maybe I've heard me on, on the radio or, or, or you will, you know, having said that the food industry or the agri-food industry in Northern Ireland is not ready and won't be ready on the 1st of January. Like the, the government had promised a, an agri-food movement assistance scheme, assistance scheme um, to help with SPS uh, uh, requirements. That isn't even set up yet. So, you know, how can we be ready? We haven't the sight of anything there. Um, the Trader Support Services are announced. We had a meeting last Monday night. Um, seemingly, anybody that brings anything in should be registered. We're only starting to hear that now. Our de department have been behind the curve on that. They're running a meeting on the 23rd of November for that, reg for that uh, reg registration to uh, be simple. It had to be done before the 23rd of November for it to be automatic. So we are trailing our feet a bit on this and everything's coming at us very, very quick. Um, so there's a lot of sorting out to be done between now and the end of the year. Victor, I know we're slightly off the future agriculture policy here, but see, just in relation to that matter, has the Trade Support Service been any help to yourselves? Armin. We had a meeting on Monday night. We had 233 of our members come on. We had Shankar Singham and Frank Dunsmere on that, that run that Twitter support services. But basically, I think the level of detail shocked us all of what's to go through. I think that would be a fair comment. I'll ask David and William there to nod if they think that as well. I know I got sort of a shock with how complicated things were going to be. And this is why at the minute I'm calling for, you know, and I, look, terminology sometimes is a, is a terrible you know, throw back to you, but call it what you like, honeymoon period, uh, adapt, adaptation period or adjustment period, call it what you like. We need a period after the 1st of January when we can adjust. Also, and this is my own thoughts, you know, to actually change everything on day one, we should have some sort of a phased thing where we, we, we do manufacturing goods and try to sort them out one week and then we move on to something else another week and move on to something else another week. And move, like the agri-food is one that just simply, a load of mushrooms just cannot simply sit on the fork uh, waiting for them to sort themselves out because that's perishable, um, especially on the horticultural side. The other thing that's of a big concern to us, so much of our food, uh, our agri-food goes down through Dublin Port and, and we do not know how that will work or if it will work. So there's, there's huge problems bringing stuff from GBN. There's also questions to be asked about getting our food out, John, uh, on that. So I'm sorry I have no answers, but, uh, you know, I'm outlining the problems here. But also I think, you know, first of all, we need, we're supposed to be in a transition period. But we, don't, we know where we're coming from, but we haven't a clue where we're going to. So I, I liken that to me telling you to set off on a car journey. And five minutes you're supposed to, before you're supposed to arrive, telling you where you were going. And you could have been heading the wrong direction all along. So we need a bit of clarity. We need to know where we're going to land at, and then we need time to get there. Uh, thank you, uh, Victor, for that very clear description of uh, where we're going or not going. Um, Patsy, Patsy Malone. 
Karen, uh, just picking up on Victor's analogy there of the, the car journey, maybe maybe the, the wee bit of tire kicking would have been needed before trading in the, the model that they had, but anyway, there you go. Um, right. But, but anyway, so um, that's speaking as, uh, as a, a mechanic song. So, but anyway, uh, can we maybe just go back there? Um, you, I, I don't know how you got an opportunity to listen to the department whenever they were talking about the basic payments there. Did, did you get that opportunity? Yes. Yeah. Um, did, uh, and I'm depending on you, because usually the guys with the cold face and everything. If there were key priorities in there uh, that you would say that the committee should be pursuing, key elements to that, um, what would those be? Now, uh, and I know you've got your papers and all there, but in the interest of, uh, to use the phrase, maybe a more professional transition than what we're experiencing now to ensure income for and uh, sustainability for family farms and the likes, uh, if you could just give us a bit of a synopsis of that. Now, then, then back to the second bit there, and I'm glad that we have a local person on the on the commission, the Trade and Agriculture Commission there. Uh, Victor, I'd be very interested to hear uh, what level of communication Liz Trust is having with the, the commission and um, what, because part of that commission work is to explore um, what other export opportunities or export markets there might be. And has she given any indication at all as to any opportunities, actual opportunities, as opposed to perceived opportunities that, that there are uh, to sustain the markets here in Northern Ireland and the producers in Northern Ireland? Yeah, well, on the, on the Trade and Agriculture Commission, and I'll take that one first, uh, Liz Truss has ongoing dialogue with the chair of the commission, but she hasn't any dialogue with the commission members. Uh, right. And at the minute, we're, we're midway through a process um, you know, we have to uh, uh, provide a report, uh, you know, and yeah, Wesley sits on that uh, group that is examining the trade deals as they go forward, and it's good to have him in there on that, And but uh, it's too premature for me to say what opportunities are out there as yet. We are hearing from different areas and different things, but uh, I, I haven't really anything definitive to, to tell you on that front. Um, we are glad that that, that that has been put in a more legal uh, footing and what we do want is to have ongoing discussions with negotiators as they go through trade deals rather than getting sight of the trade deal after it more or less is done. Um, I'll maybe ask Wesley if he wants to contact or co uh, comment on the on the board that he sits on, on agriculture. Okay, so thank you, President. Uh, nothing really much to add, Patsy, to what uh, the President's already outlined. It's early stages yet, you know, they're all, only in various uh, rounds with, you know, well, Australia's only starting, New Zealand hasn't really started yet, the US are further on, but obviously there's an election across there, so uh, we're only getting to the stage now we are looking at what they call offensive asks and some of those things, which is really what we see as potential export opportunities, and then obviously there's a, the defensive side of things, which is in terms of imports, so very yeah. early stages yet, and these things take time, so at least we're in there, which, which as I mentioned today, it's such encouraging. Okay, thank you. Yeah. To go back to your, your first question, really, uh, and I suppose it's, it's more or less on the minister's statement uh, that, 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 that would be on. Um, we are very, very glad to see, you know, the, the relaxation of cross-compliance issues and, you know, the crazy situation where, uh, where we buy, if you had a fine this year, you could go back for a number of years, that has ended. You know, I've always said we should have a fine for a crime, not a percentage of an unknown amount. Amount. So I, I think there's a lot to take comfort from in 
in the minister's speech. The young farmers thing, we would be content enough with uh, three, three tries to get into it because, you know, I think we all realise that in some cases that was being abused. I think we could say that. So we welcome that clarification that's given by Dira going forward on the improvements of, of governance and a more common sense approach taken. Um, you'll realise that in the past we have went to court with Dira because they didn't listen to the view of independent panels. If you're not going to listen to a view of an independent panel, why have it there in the, in the first case? So we do welcome that going forward. On the future support issues and what is really priority, I think, look, this is a unique opportunity to develop a, a scheme bespoke for the whole of Northern Ireland, and we have to move there bit by bit. Uh, I suppose transition would be a word that we just can't jump off a cliff edge, a 10 new system, but I think we need to start on that road. I think we, we do recognise that the system we had, while it delivered support onto Northern Ireland farms, there was a lot of that support was going to maybe farmers that weren't were only active in, 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 in a small sort of way and weren't contributing to either environmental outcomes or indeed productive outcomes. I'll ask David and William if they want a brief comment on that. Uh, thank you. Um, look, I, I suppose, Patsy, recognition that uh, just as, as we've had in the past, uh, you know, a period of time to transition, that that again would, would be important. Uh, as, as the President has outlined, we see this as at the start of a process. And, and I suppose that's the, the minister's intention in terms of uh, set, setting a, a, a direction of travel uh, in front of us. And you know, we, we absolutely welcome the opportunity to be part of that discussion. Uh, but you know, I, I think it's, it's fair to say, as the president has said, you know, we, we don't want to see something that where we're jumping off a cliff edge, like you've alluded to, with uh, the, the first of January date ahead of us. And, and we want something that uh, our farmers uh, can prepare for. Okay. Um, okay. okay, we're just going to move on here. We have, we have five minutes left until, until you men have to head on to another meeting. We have three, uh, three speakers. So, uh, Philip, first then, Harry and Morris. So, Philip? Yeah, very quickly, uh, I mean, there was a lot of talk earlier on about uh, vulnerable sectors uh, within agriculture and uh, support for that there. I mean, Rosemary and William touched on it. And I just want to ask uh, the men if the withdrawal of the ANT payment, you know, was a contributing factor to maybe the decline in the beef and sheep sector? Yeah, well, we, we do recognise that there are areas of nitre disadvantage that, that people have to farm in. The most of those would be uh, primary producing beef and sheep areas. So any coupling of support should help go to address that. Okay. Thank you. And then, I mean, I'm struck by uh, the conversation this morning, which has been very useful and informative. Uh, so thank you very much for that. I mean, Victor, you've said a couple of times that when we're designing a, a new policy, you know, we, we need a bespoke policy for the North. I, I'm struck, actually, and I mean, I'm trying not to make this sound overtly political, and I, I'm probably going to fail, but I'm struck from the conversation this morning uh, in terms of the earlier parts of your presentation when you were talking about things in the South, that maybe when we're, um, I probably would have been saying this before Brexit, but more inclined to say it now after Brexit, that when we're devising a future policy for the North, uh, you know, it, it, it's going to have, I mean, in my view, and I'm asking this question, does it actually need to be more closely aligned to an all-island agriculture policy? Well, our money's coming from a different source. Having said that, 
we do farm the same island and basically roughly the same cost base. So we need to look across the border and see what areas of their support system works and works well for them. Basically pick what's working for, for them down there, uh, uh, pick the best out of that and incorporate any new policy. That would be my opinion. And, and if, if I could come in there, like the significant point is the mass of consumers are in GB and, and we, we have we are in a prime position to help feed those 65 million people. Okay. Hey, Philip. Uh, 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 Harry. Okay, thank you very much, Chair. And uh, gentlemen, glad you welcomed the pilot protein scheme, the beans, peas, and sweet lupins. And it's good that you say this makes us more self sustainable. Do you see the scheme being taken up by many farmers, and what are the advantages of these crops here? Thank you. Well, this was something that our honourable committee had lobbied for in the past. Um, it will be quite small initially, but look, we do import a lot of soya from the other side of the world. If you examine the, the environmental imprint of that, it's probably not terribly good. Um, um, so anything we can do to increase, to grow more protein on our farms at home will be welcome to. Yeah, some of the horrible guys will try a small bit, and uh, Norman did mention pilot. So really, we are a pilot place. I would see maybe uh, more of a, a, a uptake if we can get it to grassland farms who may be able to grow some of this and uh, while it, it, it's eligible for combining they could insail it into their silage clamp to produce a higher protein feed to reduce the need for importing soya. Yeah, interesting, right. thank you. Thanks Chair. Okay, uh, Morris? Morris, yeah. Yeah. can you hear me, Chair? Yeah, go ahead, Morris. Just a point uh, that, that uh, William Irvine uh, made there a few minutes ago, uh, and gentlemen, I uh, was sitting here listening to this very intensely, and brilliant information we're getting here this morning, but William made reference to, to seed potatoes being designated, uh, moving to, into a third country if I picked them up right through a poor broadband connection. But if I did pick William upright, is he saying goods coming into Northern Ireland will be treated as exports to a third country? And does that mean tariffs or increased costs on goods like seed potatoes, grass seeds, fertilisers and chemicals uh, may apply between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK? If I pick you upright, William. Well, I, I, I apologise. I maybe give the, the wrong message there. Eh? From the 1st of January, Products moving from mainland TB into Northern Ireland are effectively coming from a third country into EU territory, and that's that. That's what raises border issues. Sorry, if I make my there, Morris, just in relation to that, the broader principle is that until such times as we get the outcome of the UK EU negotiations on a free trade agreement, then we're not so clear on the tariff situation, which could involve you know collection of tariffs and rebates. Uh, which would be between GB and Northern Ireland. I think the other thing is that irrespective of what type of trade they would do, we have to implement the protocol, particularly around the SPS standards, yeah. which is the issue around uh, you know plant health, particularly in relation to seed potatoes. So that, yeah. that will apply in any event. So that's that's a concern about you know where you're moving from GB into Northern Ireland. You're effectively moving from a third country into the EU, and therefore the rules have to apply. Yeah. And if I could just quick, sorry, if I could just quickly add, those SPS checks will definitely have a cost. Uh, yeah. Well, thanks for that. I picked you up, William. Uh, I picked you up wrong. Apologies. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Okay, thank you very much. Well, um, 
uh, Victor and David and William and Leslie, thank you very much. That was a really, really uh, helpful and very informative uh, contribution you made here this morning. And I want to thank you for your ongoing work at, at lobbying and helping to, to shape the, the farm and agenda and policies here for the betterment of the uh, industry, the agri-food industry here. So thank you very much. And I'll let you get off now to your, 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 your next in, uh, engagement, OK? Thank you. Thank you very much to the committee, and we're available at any time. No problem. You're always very welcome. Good luck to you, isn't it? Bye-bye. Thank you. Folks, um, before we just move on to the next topic, I want to just reverse back a wee bit um, uh, to the the last item on the agenda. Uh, Can I get agreement uh, for a a research paper on a comparison of the agriculture policies in other jurisdictions, uh, the EU and other parts of the world, uh, and have this at the, the committee meeting on the 17th of December? Yep. Okay. Um, okay, so, so again, I want to refer the members to the draft press release, and that's uh, tabled at 22 to 23 in your pack. Um, Claire, subsequent to it being put on your packs, Claire has made a request uh, for an additional line to be inserted uh, towards on the second last second last paragraph, uh, which says Mr. has also pledged that no farm will be left behind. And this is very welcome news upon which to build future policy decisions. Remember, okay, that line that the minister has also pledged that no farm will be left behind, and this is very welcome news upon which to build future policy decisions. Is that? I think that's fair enough. Okay, Claire. Um, um, thank you. Uh, so, uh, remember, okay, with that there with that extra line. Well, thank you very much. No problem. Um, okay, in item four, uh, I want to invite members that a virtual informal meeting has been organised with the Ulster Angling Federation on Tuesday, 24th of November at 1pm, uh, which, uh, for myself and Philip, well, we, we have confirmed that we're attending. Uh, does any other members uh, wish to attend? And if you do, please let uh, Stella know by the uh, end of play today so that the star leaf arrangements can be put in place. That's Tuesday. Uh, the Tuesday, 24th, yes, Rosemary, at well, lunchtime. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, uh, draft minutes, uh, there at uh, pages 27 to 33. Are we okay? Is it okay for me to sign off these uh, minutes? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sign here now. Presents. Um, okay, uh, okay, done that. So, how many monitors are raising in those ones? Okay, Okay, right. I'm going to move then to item seven. There's a written uh, briefing from the department on as an SL one on the, the waste uh, circular economy. Uh, item seven on your pack. So it's the clerk's memos. It's page 36 to 39. A written brief uh, and associated documents from the department is 100 at 40 to 130. The department proposes to lay uh, the the SR on the negative resolution procedure. As anticipated, that comes into operation in December. Uh, it's uh, the proposed SR is business as usual and not associated with EU exit. The Burden Advisor is committed to moving forward uh, towards a more circular economy to maximise resources, minimise waste, and promote efficiency. The circular co- economy package entered into force in 2018 and amended six uh, uh, existing waste directives, including Directive 2018-88EC on waste. Uh, transposition of the changes was required by July the 5th. We received no briefing from dear officials on the approach to transposition of the CEP on the 17th of September. The purpose of the CSR is to transpose the four amending CEB European directives, as uh, Directive uh, uh, 
2018-51, Most significant amendments were made by the Directive 2018-851, uh, which amends Directive 2018-98 EC on waste, and Directive 2018-850, which amends Directive 1999-31 EC on the landfill uh, of waste. Um, you know, there's there there are officials on standby. If you have any questions, own little and. Uh, Ian Fleming or standby members, any questions or anything you want to raise with the officials in relation to this? Or any questions you want to raise? Uh, so, members, okay, we move this forward to the next legislative stage. Great. Okay. okay. Uh, a written briefing, SL1 Waste, Amendment EU Exit Regulation 2020. There's a, a, a memo from the clerk at 132, and then the associated, paper, associated papers is page 136. This SR is subject to negative resolution, and the amendments made by the SR will come into operation on the 31st of December. It's in connection with preparations for EU exit. And uh, the Department states that the SR makes minor and technical amendments to a number of statutory instruments to implement the protocol in terms of packaging uh, and, and packaging waste. Deere states that these are technical changes only, and there will be no impact in terms of operability of the current UK-wide packaging waste regime. Consultation was not considered necessary as the rule makes minor amendments of a technical nature. Um, members, any comments? You're happy enough with this? Or? No. Okay. Happy enough? Because um, uh, there's officials in standby if there's anything you want to pick up on. Okay. Right. Are we okay if this move on to the next legislative stage? Okay. okay. Written briefing on the EU fertilising products re regulations uh, 2020. Uh, Papers are on page 190 to 228 of the packs. The, the proposed to lay the draft AR before the SR before the assembly on the negative resolution procedure and the anticipated commander operation in December. Preparation for EU exit, a statute announcement has been laid at Westminster to legislate for articles 20 to 36 of regulations uh, EU 2019 to 109 to apply in Britain. Regulation 2019-1009 will continue to apply here due to the application of the protocol. It is necessary, therefore, to bring forward separate legislation in the form of a statutory rule and to designate the Secretary of State for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs as a notifying authority for here to ensure compliance with the EU law after the end of the transition period. The purpose of the SR is to support the implementation of Articles 2036 of Regulation 2019-1009 of the European Parliament Council laying, rule, laying down rules on the making available on the EU market of EU fertilising products in the north. Um, members, any questions? Uh, want to, Philip? I, I thought when I was reading it, Chair, it was talking about the des designating the Secretary of State for DEFRA as the notifying authority. Uh, and, and I thought maybe when you were reading it out there, you read something differently. I mean, I was going to ask why it is the case that it's saying the Secretary of State for DEFRA and not. No. It is Secretary for DEFRA as the notifying authority. Uh, I, well, can I ask? I mean, maybe we should get some info as to why that is the case, why it's not within <coughs> the era minister or the executive. Yeah, is that fair enough? Yeah. You want to get that before the ISR? Okay. So, uh, we'll get that clarification and we can. Are we members content with us to move to the next legislative stage? Okay. Yeah. Derek, I can see your cat online there. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> see him there? Zoe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So the next two items on the agenda are statutory uh, instruments. The Executive Office has issued revised guidance for departmental officials on handling of SAs. The revision relates to the Cabinet Office procedure for dealing with draft affirmative SAs and has been agreed by the Executive. Sorry? Oh, sorry, I'm going too quick here. Uh, item 10, uh, the fluorinated uh, greenhouse gases and ozone depleting substances. There's the documents in your packet, page 230 to 240. Uh, this SR is to be subject to negative resolution procedure and the amendments made by the SR will come into operation on the 31st of December. It's in connection with preparations for EU exit. The rule implements a protocol by amending existing regulations aimed at minimising emissions of fluorinated gases and ozone depleting substances which are uh, used uh, in a number of products and equipment by businesses. Previous uh, legislation had removed the requirements for business to report to the European Commission on their use of fluorinated gases and ozone depleting substances in large quantities. The rule reinstates reporting requirements for the North. The rule also clarifies that the, the, the current fluorinated um, gases provisions for here do not deal with gases, products and equipment traded between Britain and the North. Um, members, any comments uh, on this one here? Okay. Are we happy enough for to move on to the next stage? Okay. Okay, I'm catching up with myself now. Uh, the next two items on the agenda are statutory instruments. Uh, the Executive Office has issued revised guidance for the Depart departmental officials in handling SAs. The revision relates to the Cabinet Office procedure for dealing with draft affirmative SAs and has been agreed by the Executive. A copy of the guidance specific to draft affirmative SAs and also a copy of the handling guidance for all SAs, uh, which includes the revised uh, text, can be found at 386 to 405 in your packs. New procedure recognises that the time is running out in Westminster for the laying and debate on SAs. So um, some are therefore being laid before the uh, minister. Uh, some are being laid before the, the minister here. The dear minister has given his consent. New procedure allows for this and that the minister has until the debate in Westminster to give or withhold their consents, consent. The SA in the Common Fisheries Policy is a draft from the procedure and a specific guide to handling of this procedure can be found in paragraphs 7 to 11, page 396 to 97 of the um, written briefing, item 11 on your agenda, uh, Common Fisheries Policy. Uh, the documents relating to this are page 242 to 261 of your packs. The SA has been downgraded to a category 2 by DERA. It ensures that Section 30 of the Fisheries Act 1981 can be used for enforcement of breaches of EU law that applicable in this jurisdiction by a protocol and will apply provisions of retained direct EU legislation relating to illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing, um, specifically in relation to the use of ports by EU fishing vessels. Um, in the North, these controls will be applied for third country vessels, both those that are EU vessels and not EU vessels. The controls include a requirement to use designated ports, a requirement to obtain authorization prior to using ports, a requirement to submit certain documents in advance of using the ports, and a regime of inspection. The Minister has asked the Committee for its opinion on the SA, um, or that the Committee will outline any comment or issue it has which officials. It wishes officials to draw to the attention of the Minister. If members have any questions relating to this here, we do have some uh, officials on, on uh, standby. 
Yes, sir. Yes, Harry, go for it. We have David Steele, Patrick Smith, and Kieran Cunningham on standby. <coughs> Harry, do you want to ask a question of some of the officials? Yep, thank you very much, Chair. I'm just wondering, can you give us assurances that this SI will not negatively uh, impact this jurisdiction in any way? If you're online there. David, Patrick, or Kieran, did you hear that? Yes. Can, can, can you hear me, Chair? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, we hear you. Yes. 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 Uh, it, 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 it's, it's David Steele here, Chair. Um, in, in terms of uh, providing a, a, an assurance and uh, any ne negative impacts in, in terms of the the, the Northern Ireland uh, fishing fleet, uh, that uh, one one of the considerations that um, is currently being given to you is the is the is this definition of uh, a, a Northern Ireland fishing vessel. Um, because at the, at, the, at the present time, um, the EU considers uh, Northern Ireland fishing vessels to be treated as, a, as, a, as third country vessels uh, for the purpose of landing um, produce into, uh, into Northern Ireland ports. Um, so from, from that point of view, if, uh, if Northern Ireland fishing vessels are, are, are treated as third country vessels, then uh, certain obliga obligations then uh, will apply in terms of uh, controls. Uh, now, obviously, we, uh, from, a, from a departmental perspective, we wouldn't uh, want to, to see that happening. Uh, we would want to see uh, Northern Ireland uh, being carved out. Um, from those um, uh, control obligations in, in the same way as, uh, as we have been from, uh, from customs. Um, so the, the only other thing I can say uh, on that particular point is that uh, we have been making the, the case um, uh, um, to, to DEFRA, and this is uh, currently the subject of uh, the ongoing uh, UK-EU negotiations. Okay. Thank you. Just a wee question. What controls will apply? I mean, what were the sort of thing? What were you thinking of? Um, well, there are controls, uh, controls such as uh, there's a requirement for advance notification um, for landing uh, produce into uh, Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland ports. Uh, so that that would be that would be one example. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, um, Chair. Yeah. Uh, David, uh, see then, just um, just. Thinking there, you know, we have the, for example, the, the likes of the Vosnes Agreement here, which enables, um, you know, uh, vessels from both jurisdictions around the island to, to share the waters. You know, w w is there a possibility that this uh, this um, SI could in any way impede, say, fishing vessels from the south of Ireland from uh, using our local ports? Chair, I, I, I don't think the the SI per se would um, have any have any. Sorry, sorry about that. Uh, I don't think the SI per se would have any impl implications, um, but certainly uh, the, the the likes of the the Vosnes Agreement uh, would, uh, would 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 need to be considered. Uh, I don't know if Kieran uh, there would want to say anything anything more on that. Yeah, so maybe just lifting above the Vosnes Agreement. So I think you were talking about the the landings from other vessels into, say, Northern Ireland. You know, I, I EU and uh, you know vessels from Ireland. Um, so at the moment, the the EU has described the way that they believe this should happen, um, in a paper that they the a technical note they provided on the 17th of August. So there are until the negotiations are concluded. Um, 
the, the theory at the moment is that they would have to go to what they call a designated port. Um, at the, currently at the moment, Northern Ireland has no designated ports. And as part of the negotiations, they have presented a number of those that they believe should be suitable going forward in that negotiations. Um, and as, as David has sort of touched on there, there would be certain requirements placed on vessels um, that would mean that they have to go to these designated ports. They have to prior notify at least four hours in advance of coming in. They have to provide what they call a pre-landing declaration to say um, how much catch they've got on board. Um, and then they may be subject to a, to a level of inspection, which um, currently is around like 5% of those of those landings. Um, so those are the sort of uh, predicaments that could be resulted if, if these aren't negotiated um, satisfactorily. Uh, just a couple of wee quick questions. Just I mean, in terms of its downgrade, why was it downgraded to Category Two? And also, uh, the the new name of the SI removes the reference to the Irish Protocol. J maybe just a wee explanation for that. And then, where are the designated ports for non-EU vessels? Uh, in, in, in terms of the, the the first question, there the 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 CFP twenty was downgraded to. Uh, category two, because initially um, at the outset of this categorisation process, um, DEFRA had considered um, all of the CFPSIs uh, to be um, of a controversial nature, if you like, because um, uh, they, they related to, to fisheries, uh, nothing more than that. But obviously, as time has moved on uh, and uh, it became clear uh, in terms of what sort of provisions were going to be in uh, CFP20, uh, then uh, we decided um, to, to, to downgrade it to, to, to that uh, category two. Uh, I think on your on your third point there, Philip, uh, you you'd asked about uh, where the where the designated ports are. Uh, at the present time, we don't actually have uh, any designated uh, ports, um, but that uh, that is the subject of uh, discussions. Okay. Uh, the, sorry, could you repeat the, the second question for just, me, please? It was just the change in the name uh, and the removal. Oh, the change in the, the name. Yeah, I think the change in the name was uh, that's that's one that uh, DEFRA, DEFRA lawyers uh, will, will will arrive at, and generally speaking, uh, they will look at the the content um, of the of of the, of the SI uh, that is being led and uh, and arrive at a title then. So uh, they, DEFRA, DEFRA lawyers uh, obviously. Um, Took, took the took, took the view um, that uh, it, it it should be re retitled. Okay. Thank you. Um, okay, Philip. Uh, th uh, well, th thank the. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Hi. Oh, sorry, Claire. You have your hand up. Sorry, Claire. I missed your virtual hand there. Hmm. You're all right. Um, just I suppose I'm keen to know who will be tasked to carry out the enforcement and inspections. Um, and have there been any direct conversations with the government in the south, or are we still going through DEFRA and the sort of EU negotiating team at Westminster? So, David, do you want, to, do you want me to come in? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think in the second one, um, uh, the, the, the discussions uh, are between uh, the UK and EU. Uh, and uh, I think that's that, I think that was made clear by uh, by one of the ministers uh, from the south that uh, discussions would be uh, uh, would be between uh, those those two parties uh, in terms of the enforcement and inspection uh, I think if if Kieran might be closer to that uh, than I am 
Yeah, so just to say, David, well done. You described the, the second book totally correct. Um, that is tied up in the negotiations. We obviously feed into DEFRA on the future model that we w want you know, to see the outcome. Um, and that's obviously taken to the, by the Cabinet Office and part of the EU negotiations. So we have been intensely involved in that. Um, so we're, 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 we're been able to display our... Uh, Desired outcome and provide the you know the sufficient information that hopefully informs a, a you know a good outcome. Um, it will be for our fisheries inspector who are part of DERA um, to enforce any uh, outcomes of the of the negotiations in terms of what legalities that we would need to fulfil. So we are working on, on you know trying to to uh, work out what what uh, implications there may be going forward and make sure with the right resources and the right uh, delivery models to do that. Thank you. Can I also ask the question uh, as well? Uh, obviously, we're, we're looking at the, the implications for um, the vessels beyond here accessing airports. Is there any possibility that the implementation is here could result in our, our vessels um, meeting impediments in terms of accessing ports uh, outside the, 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 the UK jurisdiction? And also, uh, even in terms of the, the market as well, you know, because a lot of our vast majority of our prawns, for example, um, are sold um, in the only uh, in the market. Is there any possibility that this will work the, in the other direction in terms of uh, creating blockages or impediments for our local uh, fishing fleet? Yeah, I think it, uh, in, in terms of the operation of that one, Chair, again, if I could uh, ask uh, Karen maybe just to uh, provide some uh, some comments. Yeah, so Chair, I'll, I'll maybe just take this, this, the, the second book first because it's the, the sort of easiest one to pick up on. So uh, products that would be landed by Northern Irish vessels that then wants to go on to the EU will hopefully be business as usual because that's what the Northern Ireland Protocol provides for. So already we are getting to see that many companies are thinking about their route to the EU. And the most easiest way to do that sometimes is if they to take a ferry straight, as I say, to the Cherbourgs or Santander's, um, and some of them already are are working that way, thinking into the future of you know how they maybe can avoid issues that may happen across the GB Lambridge. Um, so that, that one is to say is business usual, is good news, and is a good result of the protocol. So they are they are quite happy in that. Um, the other bit around our fishing vessels, so a. Our fleet obviously land quite a bit in GB as well, and that is obviously under unfettered access we're, we're working to, so it's business as usual again. Into the rest of the EU is obviously, uh, as we've said there before, is still subject to negotiations because it's obviously about access to those waters and then subsequently access to a number of designated ports that would hopefully be strategic enough to allow us to land where we where our fleet you know, would want to do. But as I say, that's all still tied up within the negotiations. So it's probably it's probably best to say that access will come first, and things around ports will come, you know, after that in, in part of the negotiations. So I think if I could just add there, Chair, you, I think you can get a sense that uh, we we do have the the, the legislation uh, here, but uh, in terms of the the, the implementation uh, of of this uh, and its operation, that a lot of it is still subject. Um, to the uh, ongoing negotiations. Uh, thank you. 42 days left in the transition period time is running out. So thank you very much for the uh, for that uh, briefing. Really, really helpful and for answering the questions. Um, a member content that we note this particular essay and use it the uh, former words that we previously agreed. Okay.
Okay, thank you. Oh, thank, thanks very much, Kieran and Patrick and David. Um, item 12 on the agenda is the uh, written briefing, um, the, an essay, The Control of Mercury, uh, Regulation 2020. The, uh, on your packs is page, uh, on the table papers is 25 to 27, and on the packs, uh, 2263 to 265. This makes the, the necessary corrections uh, to the EU regulation on mercury to enable its continued use as retained law after the end of the transition period. Changes are technical, enable the retained EU regulation to implement the UK's international obligations under the uh, Minimata Convention. Ensure ensure the operability of the regulation in Britain and the North, thereby implementing the protocol and provide a regulatory framework for the management of mercury across the UK. There will be new procedural requirements for the transport of metallic mercury between Britain and the North, and there will be a prohibition on the transport of specified mercury-added products between Britain and the North. While this draft affirmative essay has been laid, uh, laid, the Minister is still seeking the Committee's opinion before informing DEFRA. Uh, the, um, and there's any there's an official uh, available if anybody wants any questions. Um, just once. Yes, all right, go for it. Thank you very much. Uh, just wondering, will this in any way affect um, those trying to preserve historic lighthouses with floating beams? Uh, Alison, did you pick up that? Yes, uh, hello, Chair. Yes. Um, I I'm just trying to wreck, actually wreck my brains. That came up recently. I know we had a query regarding it. Um, can I come back and just confirm with you on that point separately in writing? Because I just can't recall it off the top of my head. But I know we discussed it in recent days. That's okay. Yes, I would like to hear because I know. And I, can, I, can, I can do that quite quickly. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you. Sure. I'm asked the question. I'd like to hear the question. <laughs> it's to do with. Um, historic lighthouses, some of them use mercury for their floating beams. Right. So I'm just wondering how yeah. this SI will affect them in any way. Okay. I, I, I actually told yeah. you off wrong. That, okay? that makes much more sense than what I thought. Tell me what you thought of said. Okay, thank you, Alison. And you uh, maybe forward for that um, answer to that question to the committee at the earliest opportunity. Oh, indeed, yes. Thank you, Alison, um, for that there. Okay, we're going to move on now to the um, Oh, sorry. Are we okay then if we uh, note the SA and agree the form of yep. words as we agree the committee? Yep. Okay, uh, item 13, written briefing, uh, common framework for chemicals and pesticides. The correspondence of the department is page 267 and 269. And the summary of the um, um, provisional uh, common framework for chemicals and pesticides is 269. Advised members of the department advise that the Common Frameworks Programme seeks to develop UK-wide arrangements for those powers falling within areas of devolved competence, which are being repatriated from the EU. The government uh, and the devolved administrations have agreed that there is an ongoing need for them to work together. Um, UK-wide uh, Common Frameworks should be established to ensure consistency and coordination and to determine how divergence can be best addressed. Dara was notified as the lead uh, NICS department for the development of common frameworks in a number of policy areas. The framework is now moving to phase three, the review and consultation stage of framework development. Um, are members okay if we receive a request a short oil briefing on the common frameworks uh, for our meeting on the 3rd of December? Correspondence. Okay. Uh, Pages 282 to 286. Uh, on page 288, we have an invitation from the Minister to visit the Caffrey Hill Farm at Glen Wherry. 
However, with such a visit may be very useful, that legal advice has been sought by the Assembly regarding external meetings and visits by the committees. While it has not been shared wider, Essentially, is saying that before an external meeting or visit takes place, a risk assessment needs completed by a competent health and safety person within the Assembly. The Assembly is still working through whose responsibility be to undertake the risk assessment. It was discussed at the CLG last week and is hoped to have an agreed process in place by December. Until the risk assessment uh, process is finalised, can I suggest that the visit is deferred and then placed on the list as somewhere as potential visit? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Page 377, your packs, corresponds to the Department on the opening of tranche 3 of Tier 1 of the Farm Business Improvement Scheme. This was omitted from the last committee meeting, pack uh, an error. Page 424, correspondence from the Ulster Anglia Federation on the recent landslip at Mean Bob Farm. Um, are members content that we seek an urgent written briefing from the department on this? Sure. No. Yes. Yeah. Maybe an oral briefing would be better. No? Um, oral briefing? I can try and put it in a pack, but I can send it to the reserve. It's just, I mean, you get a written briefing, you have to ask questions back and forth for us. Okay. Oh, well, I mean, I don't I mean, if it's, I mean, I don't want to delay the thing. I'm just thinking, I mean, I'm happy enough, whatever the committee think. Okay. Page 421, a letter from two fish producers raising concerns on a DEFRA consultation regarding a new method of allocating fish quotas. Um, the organisation is asking for our support, and we write to either George Eustace or the Fisheries Minister, Victoria Prentice. Are we, uh, are members content that we write to both of these ministers raising the concerns expressed by the two fish producers? Uh-huh, 100%. I'll be enough to ask the correspondence and index sheet, page 282 to 286. Um, in terms of our work programme, 530 to 535, um, the following briefings are now confirmed. 26th of November, future rural development strategy. Can I also suggest that on that date we also ask the Rural Community Network, Rural Action and NA Rural Women's Network to present an issue as well. And if we ask for a written brief from the, the LAGs, we will also have a short oral briefing from DERA on the common framework for fluorinated gases and ozone depleting substances. The meeting will start at 9.30. 3rd of December, we'll have an oral briefing from DERA on the Animal Health and Welfare Common Framework and Zootechnics common framework, as well as a short briefing on the common frameworks for chemicals and pesticides. It'll also be a briefing on the DERA 30-year strategic plan. 10th of December, the oral briefing on the revised TB strategy. 17th of December, uh, this will be the last meeting before the Christmas recess, and the Minister will come to the committee to update us on preparations for EU exit and his priorities for 2021. Remember to contend that we start the meeting on the 17th of December at 9.15am in order to accommodate the Minister, as he had an executive meeting to attend later that morning. Are members okay with that? 14th of January into New Year, there will be our first meeting after Christmas recess, and the Permanent Secretary and Senior Officials will attend the committee to update us on uh, transition. Uh, well, the actual transition which will be underway at that stage. Project Stratum. Uh, members will be well aware of the media coverage. A company has recently been awarded a contract to improve in broadband product uh, connectivity in rural areas. Um, are, we, are members content that we request uh, a short oral briefing on this project? Bear in mind that the, that the rural community are major stakeholders in this and the fact that the department itself has invested 15 million into 165 million investment so we're okay with that we're okay 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 um 
Do members have any other uh, business that they want to raise? Okay. Um, so the next meeting will be Thursday, twenty sixth of November at ten a.m. Sorry, sorry. Oh, sorry, nine thirty a.m. in room thirty of Parliament Buildings. So I want to thank you for attending this week's meeting, and we'll see you all again next week. Okay. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly.